Hey, thank you for joining me this week for our New Testament survey class. Here at Equip at Rocky Creek, we love to be able to help equip you, equip the saints uh, for the work of the ministry, as is mentioned in Ephesians 4.12. And these last few weeks, we've been going through a New Testament survey so that you would be able to understand and summarize the message of the New Testament so that you can go and not only apply it in your own life, but also share it with one another. The New Testament being 27 books, but tells the story of the uh, ministry of Jesus leading to the birth of the early church and the gospel being proclaimed to the nations with the awaiting of Jesus' return. And so today, uh, we're going to be in the section of associations. So what I've done is I've summarized the New Testament to 15 keywords. And if you get these 15 keywords down, you are in a place where you can summarize the entirety of all these books and how they're around in this. And so right now we are on a critical aspect of associations. Now, just as a way of refresher, we started out with incarnation about Jesus coming to earth, the preparation side of his ministry um, as he was preparing, the, as John the Baptist was preparing the way. We looked at his ministry and the elements that he sort of made sure that he entailed during that time. And then last week, we looked at the disciples of which he called. And not only these men were critical to the birth of the early church, but just the strategy of Jesus in general. Now, today, I want to talk to you about associations. And what I mean by that is, is that there are two groups of people that characterize Jesus's ministry, and they are polar opposite from one another. And if you can understand the complex nature of Jesus in the center of these two groups of people, you not only get kind of the ebb and flow of his ministry, the support, and also the backlash, but also the support and the backlash of the early church and kind of where I believe that the church is today. The associations come down to two people. They are the self-righteous and the sinners. If you understand how Jesus interacted with sinners and you enter, and you understand how Jesus interacted with the self-righteous, you get the picture of why the crowds would swell and then also there'd be controversy at almost every turn of his ministry. And in fact, even what led to his crucifixion, which we'll get to next week. So let me unpack this for us. Uh, we're going to be going throughout a few different places in the Bible, uh, the New Testament. But let's look at some of these together. Uh, first off, let's look at the sinners, right? So those group of people that would, that would uh, a lot of times, especially the self-righteous, the Pharisees, the religious leaders would say, how dare you spend time with those because they are nothing but sinners. Well, here's what you need to know about. If you look at the life of Jesus portrayed in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you realize this. Jesus was the easiest on the sinners and the toughest on the self-righteous. He was the easiest on the sinners and the toughest on the self-righteous. Now, what's unique about this is most of us would think that most religious people are the complete opposite. We often think that Jesus, that religious people, should be the easiest on the self-righteous, those people who go to church, those people who try to obey commandments, those people who try to do religious services. You would think that he would be the easiest on that and the toughest on sinners. Why would you think that? Well, because that's honestly what the church does today that we seem to be easy on those that are members. And we would say this, if you want to get into somebody else's stuff, like, you know, that's not your business. Uh, but, but those sins outside the church walls, well, that's what we will definitely uh, cause issue about. Uh, and, and yet Jesus, if you look at his life, he was easier on sinners, but toughest on the self-righteous. He was often criticized for his association with sinners. A lot of times people were uncomfortable about the ministry of Jesus based on who he spent time with, who he ate meals with, who he talked with, who he interacted with, who he befriended, and the religious community was all up in arms like, how dare you? How can you, how, there's no way possible that you can do this, Jesus. Like, you cannot 
be there that close to sinners. You need to distance yourself from them. And yet it's almost as if Jesus continued to push on in and go forward. Now, you need to understand this. While he was gracious and polite towards sinners, he also called for repentance. He was gracious, but not soft. As is seen in John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11, the woman who's caught in adultery, that passage of scripture is so very unique and interesting, and it shows the dynamic of these two associations, the association with the sinners and Jesus' association with the self-righteous. So let me unpack this in, in John chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 2. It says that um, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in, in the midst, which, by the way, that's just a unique phrase anyway. They caught her in the act of adultery. They might need to repent of themselves. Um, it says, verse 4, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Let me just stop there for a quick second. So, so it's just, I, I, I just, I cannot wait. There's all these different things. And I, I know that a lot of times I'll tell people when we get to heaven, you're not going to be so concerned about all these questions. But I, let me just tell you, I got to know. <laughs> What did Jesus write that sand, right? That would cause the oldest religious leader to flee the crime scene all the way down to the youngest as he just kept writing the sand. And so my mind wanders to all the different things that he might be writing. But here are the religious people trying to trap Jesus. All right, you like sinners. Here's one we've caught in adultery. So therefore, we need to stone her. And his simple response is, okay, the one who is without sin can cast the first stone, and then he starts writing, and eventually all the people leave. Now, here's the thing. The reality is there was someone on that uh, scene that was without sin. His name was Jesus, and what does he do? He doesn't throw a stone at her. He doesn't. While he could, he doesn't. So look what happens next, starting in verse, uh, we'll go back to verse 9. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with a woman, uh, standing before him, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now, let me just stop. A lot of times we will want to end that. See, Jesus didn't condemn her, but look at the next phrase because this is important. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. So this is why I'm saying that he's gracious and polite towards sinners, but he does call for repentance. He was gracious, but not soft. So what I mean by that is a lot of times I think we, we, we get this confused that we think that the woman called adultery needed to stop her adultery before Jesus would love her. That's not how this went. Jesus saw her caught in her sin, still said, I don't condemn you. And that's not the end of the story. So there's grace, but then there's also this, this call for repentance don't continue to do it. This isn't cheap grace. This isn't, well, you've been free from your sin. You've been forgiven from it and just continue on. Here's a free pass. No, no, no. This is, I don't, I, I've been caught in this. I feel sorry for it. Uh, and, and I don't want to, and Jesus is saying, don't do it anymore. Jesus was gracious, but he wasn't soft towards sin. 
And one of the biggest misrepresentations of Jesus was that he taught not to judge others. That is simply untrue. Let me give you a um, probably what I think is one of the most quoted Bible verses in all of Scripture from Matthew chapter 7, verse number 1. This is contained in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he says, Judge not that you may not be judged. And so a lot of people, um, and once again, this is normally said in the, in the way of church, where people will come up and say, you know what, uh, so-and-so, you, you don't need to do that anymore. You go, hey, we're not supposed to judge one another. That's not what this says. And you go, Trev, you just read that. Let me, let me read the whole passage to make sure you understand what Jesus is saying. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So he says, look, if you don't want anybody else to judge you, then you better not judge. He says, whatever standard you use, you better be able to apply it to yourself. So you don't need to call someone else out for being a horrible husband if you're not being a decent husband to your spouse, right? Look what he says in uh, verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Listen to this. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. If you read that entire um, paragraph there of Jesus' thinking contained in the Sermon on the Mount, what you notice is this. He says, if you don't want to be judged, if you don't want to be held accountable, then you better not call it out anybody else. But if you're going to, this is what you need to do first. Instead of me noticing the speck in your eye, and I've got a log literally protruding from mine that I, it just completely um, complicating my eyesight and uh, way of life, Jesus is saying this. First, you need to take the log out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out. But listen to what he says in verse 5 again. He goes, take out the log. You do need to take out the log. Why? So that you can take out the speck in your brother's eyes. Jesus is going, no, I want you to take the speck out of your brother's eyes, right? That I'm wanting you to do that, but you can't do that with your own stuff here. And so this is, even if you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, an interesting thing of what Paul said was, is that this church was allowing the sin of a member to go on unchallenged. And he says, I'm, not, I'm telling you, don't associate with that man. Kick him out of the church and don't associate. And then, he's, and then he responds. He goes, I'm not saying not to associate with sinners, people outside the church like that, because if that's the case, you'd have to leave the world. I'm saying if someone calls the name Christ, says that he's a brother and is not acting like it, that's when church discipline comes in. He says, we are to, and he literally says it this way in 1 Corinthians 5, we are to judge the insiders, not the outsiders. And this is the heart of things that Jesus was trying to teach, but also exemplify in his personal ministry that we have completely flipped on its head as a church. We judge the outsiders, not the insiders. And scripture teaches us to judge the insiders, not the outsiders. So when we come to the life of Jesus, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know God's word, why wouldn't you sin? Why wouldn't you do all these horrific things that are forbidden in the Bible? Because they are easy expressions of giving into your flesh. They are saying, I have certain desires and I want them met in my way at my time. And so if you're outside of Christ, of course you would do that, right? That's completely normative. And so Paul is saying, don't judge the outsiders for that because that's what outsiders do. 
but on the inside, that's what we've got to address. So Jesus was, when I say soft on the sinners, he realized sinners are going to do what sinners do. They're going to sin. What has to happen? They have to be transformed by the gospel. They have to have a new nature. They have to turn from a sinner to a saint, and then we start expecting them to follow commands. It's the same issue in the Old Testament when the commandments were given. The commandments were given after they had been redeemed, not as a prerequisite to get out of slavery. And so with this, Jesus had no problem sitting down and having a conversation, having a meal, reclining with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. Oh my, like the religious establishment couldn't handle it, but he was there. Why? Because of course they were there. And how else were they going to come out of that lifestyle if all of the religious people distanced themselves from them? No, Jesus got into a relationship with them and then would call them to obedience and change. So when you look at these passages, I'll just show you once again in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, look again um, where he says, I wrote in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. We've gotten this flipped in the church where we, where we will uh, raise up our picket signs, and we will call out the sins outside the church, but we act like it's none of our business on the inside of the church. Jesus allowed sinners to be sinners and he would befriend them and then call them to repentance. And so that was a, a context that honestly escalated his relationship with the other second group of associations. So the association with the sinners, Jesus befriended them, he loved them, and then he would call them to a different life. The self-righteous though, couldn't stand that aspect of Jesus's ministry towards them. So let me talk to you about the Pharisees. The identity of the Pharisees, they were a fellowship of serious-minded Jewish men that were committed to the Old Testament law. These men had uh, memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Let's be honest. Some of us struggled getting those five in order. They had memorized all of them. They had memorized all 613 commands, and they would like to brag that they were keeping all of them. These were serious-minded Jewish men these were the religious elite. So if you were to think about in our context, who would be the religious elite? That's who you have to be in danger of, who are the Pharisees. So a pastor like me, I am in the most dangerous line to be able to say, okay, well somehow because you feel like that you know a certain amount of things or live a certain way, that somehow you're at a different level as everybody else and it causes you not to trust in grace, but rather than works. This is the Pharisees. And in any religious leader, we have to be careful. Any church folk, any people who've been around a long time have to be careful of this elitist attitude. Unfortunately, these Pharisees began holding to extensive extra biblical traditions and would oftentimes let their traditions stand in the way of obeying the truth. So what I mean by that is, is that it wasn't so much that they were trying to keep commandments. Jesus was all for that. It was that they were putting their extra biblical traditions at the same plane as what was given to the people of God from the word of God. And so sometimes it would let their traditions stand in the way of obeying the truth. So in Matthew 23, 
Jesus uh, gives seven woes to these scribes and these Pharisees. This is what he says in verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat and do not observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. So and then he starts talking about, like, look, they love being in the special seats and recognized and thinking they're somebody. And listen to this, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Um, uh, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, that's a convert, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Goodness gracious, right? Um, let me go down to verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which hourly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. Did you catch that? He said, look, you're adding all these things on top of people and expecting this, and on the inside, your heart is just as corrupt, if not even more corrupt, because they were putting their traditions. Um, they would have a certain things. Jesus mentioned this uh, also in Matthew 23. He says, some of you aren't taking care of your parents because of extra commands. Well, the commandment says to take care of your parents, right? To honor them. And because of the extra biblical traditions that you have about that it's better to tithe to the, um, the religious institution rather than taking care of your family, your traditions have gotten in the way of the commandments. Well, another group that's a religious group were the Sadducees. They were wealthy priests who were unfriendly and unpopular among the masses. So they were coming along, they were wealthy priests, they were unfriendly, they were kind of this religious elite, and the most of the masses did not uh, like them. They rejected the extra-biblical traditions of the Pharisees. Uh, so this is group, Sadducees were kind of against it, and they did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. That's mentioned in Mark chapter 12, verse 18, as well as Acts 4 and Acts 23. The way that my seminary professor taught me this, to ever, if you're confused between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as you remember that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection and they were sad, you see. Bad joke, it works, you'll never forget it, just saying. So these Sadducees were, did not believe in the resurrection, so when Jesus would talk about it, they pushed. So the Pharisees and Sadducees, they don't get along with each other, but they found uh, something they could unify. Uh, and we'll get to it in a second. The Essenes were another community that lived communally and emphasized a strict level of purity. So here's another religious group. They lived communally, all together. They are kind of like on the outskirts of town a little bit, emphasize a strict level of purity. And these groups, these three groups, all didn't agree with one another, but they had a common enemy whose name was Jesus. And they would work together and with Rome to try and trick Jesus. So these groups who did not like Jesus, they would actually work together. Let me just, if you go to Matthew 22, I want to show you this. We're not going to read the entire passage, but I want to highlight a few different things so that you see what's happening here. Um, Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, it says, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, okay? Now go down to verse 23. It says, the same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. Um, verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, listen to this, they gathered together. And one of them, 
a lawyer asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Says, you get this? Pharisees had their shot. They failed. Sadducees come up. They failed. These two groups don't like each other. They decide, we hate Jesus even more than one another. Let's see if we can come together. And so he, they ask him this. Jesus answers the question really well. Verse 41, um, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. He's tired of them. He's tired of answering all their questions. He gives them one back. He volleys back. And, and he says, saying, who do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how was he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Well, there you go, Jesus. That's one way to handle it, right? And so even these Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes, they didn't agree. They didn't like each other, but they were so jealous of the following that Jesus had. They were also very concerned about the teaching that they felt that Jesus was giving that they thought was uh, unbiblical and uh, not even heretical, but also blasphemous. And we'll, we'll get to that here in a second. Many of the Pharisees would appear to respect Jesus, but oftentimes they'd use a compliment and an attempt to soften him before trying to catch him in his words. So sometimes they'd come up, oh, teacher, we know that you're true. Oh, rabbi, we know that you do great things, blah, blah, blah. And so it's almost like they're trying to butter him up. And I can just imagine if Jesus smirked, there'd probably be a smirk, but he's a lot better than I am. He knows it, right? He knows this in their heart. He hears them brown nose and he goes, okay, let me, let me answer your question. And he was not easy on them. And sometimes he would say shocking things like, let me just tell you something, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are closer to the kingdom of heaven than you because the tax collectors and the prostitutes know they need grace and you religious folks thinks you're okay in your own self-righteousness. It doesn't work that way. Um, some Pharisees like Nicodemus uh, realized something was different about him. If you go to John chapter three, um, Nicodemus is the original Nick at night because, because it says that he came to Jesus at night because he had questions. Why would he come at night? He didn't want any of his friends or the religious institution to know he was considering some of these claims of Jesus. And Nicodemus was enthralled by the things that Jesus said. And he came with a list of questions and Jesus kept pushing down to the heart of really where Nicodemus was so that he could understand the truth uh, of the gospel. Um, now, when we get down to this, and, and we're, we're leading into next week, where we're going to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, but what was the reason that made these Pharisees, these religious men, so desperate that they wanted to kill Jesus? What was it? They so desperate, they wanted to kill Jesus? Well, here's the reason why. They were following the biblical command in their mind. So when the Pharisees, when Jesus would say certain things, um, especially if it was against them, antagonistic toward their establishment. But one of the main things that would happen is, is that he claimed to forgive sins. And, um, and so for this, they knew as people who had memorized the book of Deuteronomy, they were, they were following a biblical command. Let me read it to you from Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse six. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is your own soul, entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. 
listen to this, you shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God. Now, I'm going to show you something here in just a second, but I want you to remember that, that if someone is drawing you away from worshiping the one true God, the the punishment, the, the, uh, the, the consequence for that is stoning, that you stone him to death if they're trying to draw you away from the Lord your God. It says it again in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 3, and if anyone has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden and has told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. So if you try to pull Jewish people, Israelites away from the worship of the one true God of the Bible, then the, the punishment for that is stoning, okay? So let me point this out to you. They thought that Jesus was blaspheming. In Mark chapter two, paralytic is brought to Jesus, brought to him by his four friends, lowered down through the roof, brings him to him. They're expecting healing. And in Mark chapter two, verse five, it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Once again, paralytics thinking, I'm coming here for, for healing. And Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now look at verse six. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming, not preaching heresy, not incorrect, blaspheming. Look at this next question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So when Jesus said to this man, um, I want to, I, I, I'm saying your sons are for, your sins are forgiven, uh, son. What happened was, as they said, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus goes, you're right. And if you follow that, if you follow that line of thinking, what Jesus says is, just so you know that I have the authority to do that, son, pick up your pallet and go home. So Jesus claims to have the authority that's reserved for only God, and that is forgiveness of sins. From that point in Mark chapter 2, the Pharisees had their eyes on him, how to take him out. Let me show you another time where this happens. In John chapter 8, we look at this passage where um, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. Verse 57 says, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus, we're in John 8. Abraham's Genesis 12. Like, you're not even 50. What in the world? You haven't seen Abraham. And look at verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, let me just stop right there. If you were in a court of law, you need to have two witnesses. The word truly is the word that we know as amen. We say it at the end of a prayer. So when you pray something, you say amen, saying, I believe that's true, what I just said. So when Jesus says this, the Greek says, amen, amen, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, that phrase is unique because Jesus is saying this. I say this on the uh, character and quality I stand on my own worth here, and I'm saying it two times. I don't need another witness because I am sufficient. Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that seems awkward grammar, right? You should you think you'd say before Abraham was, I was, or I'm older than Abraham if he was just saying he's really old, which would seem ridiculous. But look, verse 59, you always watch for the response of the religious people to clue you in, what did Jesus just do? Verse 59, 
So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why would they pick up stones? Because Jesus just claimed to be God. They thought that Jesus was trying to pull them away from God. What Jesus was doing was revealing himself as God. When Jesus said in verse 58, truly, truly, on my own witness and authority, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The Jews knew exactly what he did. He was claiming to be the great I am. When Moses was at the burning bush and saying, I know that I need to let your people go, but who am I supposed to tell Pharaoh what God is wanting him to go? Like, there's so many gods. What's your name? And the bush said, I am who I am. You tell him I am has sent me to you. And when Jesus says, you want to know if I'm older than Abraham? Oh, no, no. Before Abraham was, not I was. Before Abraham was, I am. And they pick up stones because they know what he just claimed to do. Now, Here's the thing. They were doing the biblical thing is right if Jesus wasn't God. The issue is this. Jesus was God in the flesh. He proved it time and time again. One more uh, time where we see this in John chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And listen to this. I and the Father are one. We're one. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. And what happens? Verse 31, look at what they do and you know what's happening here. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. There he is. He's being blasphemous again is what they thought. In reality, they weren't being, he wasn't being blasphemous. He was being true. Jesus was God in the flesh. But if you look at throughout this entire time, you look that Jesus's associations with these two group of people, the sinners and the self-righteous. If you understand the complexity, you understand that while the, the movement that was happening was birthed around tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and people whose lives have been transformed and the stuffy, prideful, self-righteous Pharisees couldn't stand it. And those groups, those two associations, those two associations caused the complexity of what Jesus' ministry and movement happened and it caused the Pharisees and the religious community to put him to the side and to feel like that they needed to remove him, which we're going to talk about next week as we get to the crucifixion. But as we go, here's the thing that I want you to hear. We could possibly have, if you think this kind of context, if we look at the life of Jesus, there is a good chance that if Jesus was a member of a local church, that he might be criticized for the type of friends that he had, the type of intentionality that he would spend with those people who are far from God. Jesus's example might make you uncomfortable, and that might be a good thing. Jesus isn't expecting sinners to turn on their own. He's expecting us to befriend them, to love them as they are, and then to call them to repentance and a life change. And he's calling us to proclaim to the self-righteous that they need to understand that salvation only comes from him and not the fact that they're good. If Jesus' example makes you uncomfortable, that might be a good thing. Let's follow him to the homes, to the streets, to the relationships that make us uncomfortable, not as a free pass to continue in sin, but to know that how will people understand the gospel if we don't befriend them? We keep them at arm's length away from where we are. They'll never come to faith. We've got to befriend them. 
And so, Father, we come to you now, and I just pray that as people who follow Jesus, your son, who would make the religious people uncomfortable with the comfort that he would find being with the sinners, befriending them, loving them, showing intentionality with them, and then calling them to repentance only and after that fact, God, it helps gives us the paradigm. God, there are people who need to know Christ. They're all around us. And if we wait for them to clean up their act before they do it, we may never see them. God, help us befriend those people where they are to love them in their sin and to call them to repentance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. See you next week.